over the last um, couple of days we've mentioned this idea of the the counterintuitive nature of what the Buddha taught being in an interpretation of his expression Pati Sotagami going against the stream and today I'd like to talk about another term that's very central to his teaching and that is the idea of Sotapanna entering the stream in both cases we have exactly the same word Sota stream but being used in radically different ways so we find this actually quite a bit in Buddhism the Buddha will use a term um, in two uh, quite contrasting fashions for example he'll sometimes say about being entangled in the thicket of views and opinions ditti and then in another context he will talk about the importance of sama ditti of uh, an authentic view there's a kind of one almost senses at times a kind of playfulness um, a resistance to being uh, too trapped by defining a word in one and one way only but having a flexibility a fluidity perhaps even a kind of enjoyment in the ambiguity of language to get a sense of what is meant by entering the stream we need to see this in the wider context of what are known as the four ennobling truths perhaps more widely translated as the four noble truths and here we have a doctrine that is so central to Buddhism it's almost impossible to um, pick up any book on the subject and not immediately be exposed to these ideas the four noble truths and the problem though is that often these four truths are presented as though they're as it were four uh, propositions that every self-respecting Buddhist has to believe in and they therefore are set up as kind of uh, axiomatic uh, doctrines or dogmas and that is in fact often how they are treated so the first truth is the truth of suffering and again it's sometimes translated inaccurately as life is suffering the Buddha never says that he says it's simply dukkha there is suffering, there is dukkha again a complicated term the second truth is the truth of the origin of dukkha which the Buddha recognizes as a particular kind of grasping or craving craving is the word that's originally used but it goes back to this kind of self-clinging and holding we've been speaking about the third truth is the cessation of um, craving or grasping 
And the fourth truth is that of the, of the path, the eightfold path. Now, one of the curiosities about this model is that um, one often wonders why it's been presented in this particular sequence. Why do we start with suffering, then go back, as it were, logically, to its origins, its causes, then we come to the end of suffering? And again, if we look carefully at the text, it doesn't actually talk of the end of suffering, it talks of the end of the causes of suffering, the ending of craving. But nonetheless, um, it's, it's an odd sequence. And then finally we have the path, the path the Buddha describes as the eightfold path that leads to the ending of craving. Why are these presented in this um, rather um, what appears to be unnatural sequence. I think the clue to answering that question lies again through looking carefully at the, uh, the first discourse the Buddha gave um, in which he presents these four truths not as propositions to believe but rather as injunctions to act or to do something. And so for each truth, there is a corresponding action. This is very explicit in, in the text. The first truth of Dukkha is to be fully known. The second truth of the origins of Dukkha or craving is to be relinquished to be let go of. The third truth of, of cessation is to be experienced. And the fourth truth of the path is to be brought into being, is to be cultivated. Don't worry, I'm going to go over this again, but it's important, I think, to lay out the basic ground plan to see where we're going. I said earlier that the doctrine of, um, of dependent origination or contingency is a bit like the, the E equals MC squared of Buddhism. The idea that when this is, that arises. When this arises, whatever arises is something that ceases. Uh, to recognize this, um, this principle within, as it were, all aspects of our life, of our experience, of our understanding of reality, lies at the very core of what the Buddha taught. And from that insight, which as we saw, the Buddha identifies as the heart of his own awakening, we can then tease out or develop um, all of the uh, teachings and practices and everything that subsequently came to be known as Buddhism. The first step in this translation of the primary principle of dependent origination leads us into its first, form, its first formulation as a practice 
in the teaching on the four ennobling truths. This is recognized quite explicitly by Nagarjuna, who we mentioned earlier, the great philosopher of emptiness, who says um, in one of his verses, um, those who see contingency see suffering, its origins, its cessation, and the path. He sees an, an exact um, uh, step from contingency to the four truths. And likewise, just as the Buddha in the very first discourse, I, sorry, in the, just as the Buddha when he describes his awakening as centered in this experience of contingency, when he then leaves Bodhgaya and walks to Benares in order to meet his former companions in asceticism and delivers the first discourse called the, uh, the, uh, the, the Discourse on Turning the Wheel of Dhamma, the first teaching he gives that constitutes this discourse is that on the Four Truths. So we can see both historically the link between contingency and the Four Truths. We can also see logically how the Four Truths are, in a way, the initial extrapolation of the idea of contingency into a form of life, into a form of practice. And again we get, at the end of the first discourse, um, the Buddha's acknowledgement that it was these four truths that also constituted his awakening. And that's not a contradiction from the, the text I cited earlier, but simply an elaboration of the same principle. He says, As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the reality of the four truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. So again, when we... Um, uh, get into these long discussions about, well, what is enlightenment? The Buddha is very clear about this. There's nothing mystical or obscure about it whatsoever. Uh, this is stated very explicitly, that the core of this awakening, this enlightenment, is that of this deep experiential insight into contingency, dependent origination, and in the next instance, the elaboration of that principle into these four truths. One might wonder, well, why are they called noble truths? Or why is it often translated as noble truths? The word is Arya Satya. Arya um, does, of course, mean noble. But remember that Arya also is, or was at the time of the Buddha, a, an ethnic and racial concept. It referred to the peoples who had um, immigrated from Central Europe 
into North India about a thousand or so years before the Buddha, who considered themselves the Aryans, which means like the noble ones, the elevated ones. And the Buddha was in a way um, one of the uh, the uh, people who who brought that Aryan civilization to a, a certain peak. But as we've seen, as I was just saying, what the Buddha tends to do is, is take a term that had a meaning um, at, uh, had a broad meaning at his time, and then he twists it around and gives it another sense. For him, Aryan doesn't any longer have anything to do with a particular race of people or a tribe or something like that, but it, he turns it into a universal idea that any person, no matter what their background, no matter what their, their gender or whatever, is capable of becoming Aryan, of becoming noble. And these truths, therefore, are called noble, not because the truths themselves are noble, which would, one might assume quite evidently from the way it's presented, the first noble truth, the second noble truth. It's difficult to see what is noble about suffering, for example, even more difficult to see what is noble about craving. So why are these truths called noble? According to what my Tibetan teacher would explain, they're noble because through understanding them, through integrating them into your own life, that lends your life a certain nobility or dignity. These truths are therefore ennobling rather than noble in themselves. It's not the, um, the truths themselves, but rather what we do with them, how we relate to them, that brings about a nobility, a spiritual nobility, in our own existence. And particularly when we let go of this idea of the truths being a sort of axiomatic doctrines that Buddhists believe, and we look at them as a, uh, a model or a framework in which we do something, in other words, as a framework for practice, we can see too that they are primarily actions rather than beliefs, and through enacting these truths, that is what will have some kind of transformative effect on our lives. So what I want to look at today is how these can be enacted. Now, this is already implicit in the particular injunctions given to each one. And this is what allows us to see, I believe, how and why these truths are arranged in this particular sequence. Suffering, its causes, cessation, the path. If you think of this in terms of the injunctions, it becomes much more easy to see why. We could almost sum these up in four slogans, one might say, or four commands or suggestions. 
no suffering, let go of craving, experience cessation, create a path. Let's just go through that step by step. And we'll see that each of those injunctions leads naturally and organically to the next. And that is what creates a, a process here rather than uh, a mental uh, struggle to figure out why they're in this order. They're actually quite naturally flowing one from the other. And the starting point is to, is to fully know suffering. The Buddha puts an emphatic on the word know, pari not just jnā, which means to know, but pari-jnā, to fully know. Or the Tibetan translation, yong susheva, means completely or totally know dukkha. That's the injunction. That, that, that's the practice. Now this is perhaps, again, one of the most counterintuitive injunctions um, that the Buddha gives. In other words, if you're seeking genuine well-being, then look deeply into the nature of suffering. It seems very um, uh, odd that someone might say that. It would seem to be the last place to look. If you want to be happy, then suffer a bit more. What sense does that make? I think it makes a lot of sense. Because part of or perhaps one of the roots of our failure to experience well-being is our almost instinctive refusal or denial to um, encounter and to embrace the suffering that is knit into the very fabric of our lives, inescapably. One might argue that much of our life is spent in a desperate flight from having to encounter suffering. Now for the Buddha, suffering, uh, as he describes it in, in, uh, in this opening sutta, or discourse, um, is primarily of an existential nature. He says, birth, sickness, aging, death are dukkha. In other words, the dukkha he's referring to doesn't mean just you know, stub toes and headaches and feeling a bit bored sometimes. But it actually goes to the very uh, heart of what it means to be human, what it means to exist as a sentient creature. It means to embrace the fact that we have been born into this world, we are subject to uh, the breakdown of the body and ultimately to death and our eviction from this place. But he also phrases it um, in a way that's a little more specific in terms of... Um, let's just read the actual text itself. <clears throat> Encountering what is not dear is painful. Separation from what is dear is painful. Not getting what one wants is painful. In short, the five uh, aggregates, our body-mind complex, is painful, or dukkha, 
Very difficult to find the right word in English for dukkha. And in some ways, all of this is saying can be summarized in this rather uh, jokey phrase that you sometimes see on people's T-shirts these days. Shit happens. In other words, we're in a world where things happen that we would prefer did not happen. And that may seem rather rather self-evident, but it is a very crucial characteristic of our existence. We try to deny that, we try to get round it, we try to avoid it, we try to explain it away, to rationalise it. We like to think that the world is there for the gratification of our desires and the provision of our, our, our happiness, but unfortunately, it's not like that. It can be sometimes, which is wonderful. We certainly experience joy and well-being and happiness and uh, ecstasy and so forth and so on, but whether or not our lives are fulfilled in those ways, that doesn't exclude us from the fundamental fact that um, our existence on this earth is uh, continuously and constantly shot through with what we don't want, what we don't like. Now what the Buddha is saying is that the problem doesn't lie so much in these in the fact that that's the case. That's simply the case. The problem lies in the ways in which we habitually deal with it. But rather than accepting this, acknowledging it and facing up to it, or in his words, fully knowing it, we tend to shy away from it. We tend to uh, evade it. We tend to block it out. We tend to explain it away. What the Buddha is suggesting is that that approach, that evasive approach, is actually what will only lead to our experiencing greater discontent, frustration, anguish, unhappiness, because our, our strategy of living in the world is actually in conflict with the nature of the world itself. <coughs> So the first step, therefore, is to recognize that strategy of flight and escape and blocking out and actually to pay attention to what it is that we feel to be so undesirable and so fearful and to encounter it. And this is very much one of the things that we do here on a retreat. In meditation, we sit still for prescribed lengths of time, we walk up and down for prescribed lengths of time, we cut off all other or as many as possible avenues of distraction, and we allow ourselves to be uh, totally with what is happening in the moment. And this is you know, if you haven't got that point yet, <laughs> clearly we haven't been explaining things very well. <laughs> but what we're doing here, in a way, is setting up a condition, uh, a circumstance, in which there is no escape. I mean, of course, we can jump in our car and drive away. But if we accept the conditions of the retreat, 
we're accepting to be in a situation in which we are not going to escape from ourselves. We're not going to flee. If we do flee off in our minds, and it probably does happen sometimes, we come back to the breath. We come back to the pain in the knee. We come back to the pressure of our feet on the ground. We come back to what it is that we are. Without preference, without judgment, without interpretation, we just stare reality in the face and we say, yes, this is what is going on. I may feel very anxious, I may feel very upset, I might feel very depressed, I might feel very buoyant and radiant and calm and joyous. Whatever it is, that is where we are and that is where we centre our attention. And this, I feel, is very much the, the practice of the first truth, the fully knowing dukkha, to be with it. Now, we do that, though, by providing some rather important tools. The first one is to learn how to stabilize our attention. This is called shamatha, uh, stilling the mind. Because it's quite difficult to be with um, our experience um, without having a kind of base on which we feel grounded and secure, in which we can just be with what is taking place. So the first part of meditation is very much about focusing on the breath or some other object in, in order that the mind begins to settle down a bit in which we get a kind of calm focus that's much more centred in the body rather than in the head. But that is really only phase one of meditation. Phase two is called vipassana. Again, a word that's used very generally nowadays and sometimes one loses um, sense, the sense of what it actually means. Vipassana means something like um, uh, looking deeply. Uh, pasana means to see or to look. The particle V either means a kind of intensifier, intense seeing, which I think is a, probably a fairly good way of looking at it. So again, when we come back to this moment, when the mind is settled, we look at it more intensely. But the problem with that is that we think all we really have to do is just kind of eyeball it a little bit more uh, totally and magically it will reveal its secrets. I think intense here doesn't mean just, you know, staring a bit harder. I don't see why that would have much effect at all apart from making whatever it is just that more vivid. The V particle in vipassana also means to differentiate it means to uh, it, it, it means to somehow to be able to tease open to, to, to tease apart the nature of that experience it implies a degree of of investigation of analysis and specifically the Buddha 
um, suggest that we pay attention to certain key features of our experience. We've said this again and again. Impermanence, dukkha, we come back to dukkha again. Anatta, the impersonal or selfless nature of experience. That it's by the, the, what distinguishes shamatha, or simply sitting still, focusing the mind, getting calm and clear from vipassana. Vipassana means penetratingly observing and paying attention to these key features of experience that, from the Buddha's point of view, are what will lead us to this entering of the stream, this experience of awakening, or whatever we call it. So we're not just looking at things with kind of wide open eyes, but we're also learning to pay particular attention to these key features. And through doing that, we begin to orient ourselves to our experience from another perspective altogether. As we've mentioned already, these, these features of experience are things that we instinctively don't pay attention to. We, we, we're kind of wired to try to create a situation in our lives that is pretty much stable and permanent, that's one that seems to optimize and maximize our uh, capacity for pleasure and well-being and satisfaction, and also one that is intensely identified with me and what I relate to as mine. That seems to be the neurobiological uh, conditioning that sets us up for pretty much how we then behave in this world. The whole of the consumer society is built on this. The Buddha's going against that. He's going against that intuition and instructing us to look at those things that we conventionally and habitually ignore and to do so from a still and focused space and to do so consistently in a kind of disciplined fashion. Now what happens when we begin to um, uh, experience our world more and more from that perspective we find that over time, and perhaps at certain key moments of insight, that we, that we begin to acknowledge and recognize in a very felt way the ephemeral nature of things, the transient nature of things, the tragic condition of life, and also how the world, the sheer pouring forth of experience, is quite indifferent to me and my ego and my plans and all of the stuff that I'm so involved in most of the time. And it's a willingness to embrace that, which can be difficult. It's difficult to embrace that, but that seems to be what the Buddha is suggesting, to embrace the world from that perspective. Now, although it might be difficult, I think it's hard to deny that it is not more truthful and more honest to, in, to the way in which 
the world, in fact, has come about, or the way the world is. So there's a kind of truth. There's a kind. There's a kind of truth telling here, a kind of honesty, and a willingness to say yes. That is the way things are, and as we do that, we quite naturally move into a relinquishing or a letting go of certain habits of behaviour, specifically greed. Hatred and delusion, what are called the three fires or the three poisons in Buddhism. And that is, of course, the injunction regarding the second truth. The first truth is dukkha, and to fully know that. The second truth is craving or grasping, and to let go of that. Now, we often hear. On meditation retreats, when we go for an interview with the teacher, for example, we say, "Oh, I can't get this thing out of my mind. I'm really worried about this, and this is my my husband, my wife, my children, my workmates." Da 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 da. And the teacher will very compassionately simply say, "Well, let go," <laughs> as though all we had to do was find a magical off switch somewhere, and it would just disappear. Now, sometimes that advice can be infuriating, because it, although it might sound like a very good idea, it doesn't actually give us any clue whatsoever as to how one lets go. Letting go is not something that we can do、um, willfully. I can't tell you. Say, for example, at the count of three, you will all let go of your egoism. <laughs> One, two, and there it's gone. Now we can all go home. It's not like that. Letting go、um, is therefore something which also arises out of conditions. It too is a dependently emerging phenomenon. In other words, in order to let go of something, we have to create the conditions whereby it will naturally fall away. And the first truth, fully no suffering, is precisely that condition. When we come to see the world, not just intellectually, but from a deep felt. Experiential place, we recognise its impermanence. We recognise its tragic nature. We recognise that it's not me or mine. By seeing the world in that way, by knowing the world in that way, those habits of trying to permanentise things, trying to create something and hold on to something that will be mine forever and ever after. Trying to somehow、uh, deny and exclude any possibility of discomfort or frustration, trying to、um, establish oneself or one's possessions or one's status as mine. When we we begin to see through all of that, then the very raison d'être of greed, of hatred, of confusion begins to be undermined. 
it's not any more a reasonable or even a particularly intelligible thing to try to do that or to perform that strategy of acquisitiveness and rejection and so forth within a profoundly transient, impersonal reality. It just doesn't make any sense. We might know that intellectually. We might buy into the Buddhist theory. But unless we translate that into our own felt experience, it's not going to have any effect, or it'll have a very notional effect. So fully knowing dukkha morphs, as they say, into letting go of grasping. An image the Buddha gives um, is that of a child who suddenly no longer is drawn to making sandcastles. We've probably all had this experience. Up to a certain age, we go to the beach and we build the sandcastles and we try to keep the sea away and it's all, we're all terribly invested in all of this. And then one summer, we go along to the beach and we see the other little kids doing this and we think, what a waste of time. <laughs> it's no longer, it doesn't have the same kind of... Um, thrill to it as it did before and I think a lot of um, what happens as we grow up and I don't mean just become children to adults I think in a way we're trying to grow up all the time is that we kind of grow out of things and we don't as it were um, like the child the the ten year old child who one summer no longer is going to get involved in the sandcastle operation the child doesn't have some kind of major epiphany. Sandcastles is a waste of time. It's just the child has grown out of it. The child has grown out of it because the child has come to experience the world in another way. There's a certain maturity has taken place and certain other interests, um, concerns, have replaced those that were previously so dominant. Uh, the Buddha, in fact, often uses this term of the childish to refer to those who don't, as it were, apprehend these truths that he's trying to communicate. There's a certain immaturity in that. And so there's a, there's, there may be moments of deep revelatory insight on a retreat, for example. We might suddenly grasp in a very deep way the ephemerality, the impermanence of things. But for that to have a lasting effect, it needs to be continuously uh, affirmed and reaffirmed. It's something we need to notice uh, continuously, and that's why there's this emphasis on, on continuity of practice. Not just what we do here, but how we bring that perspective into our work, into our relationships, into our family life, and so on. So that we, uh, over time, these uh, perspectives become more and more just second nature. They become intuitive, effectively. We don't have to think about it anymore. It just becomes a feature of our conscious experience. And it's in that sense that our behavior begins to be transformed into one that's less acquisitive, that's less driven by hate, that's less driven by, if only this wasn't the case, then I would be happy. If only that person wasn't in the office, then everything would be great. 
thinking that we can somehow manipulate the world by just deleting a particular element of it or acquiring another one. When, when we see through that, then the way we relate to things will change. And as this um, dropping away of those habits of behavior continues, it can bring us to a point where perhaps for a few moments, perhaps for longer, there is a complete freedom from the imperatives of greed, of hatred, of fear. There's a kind of stopping of those things. And that is called nirvana. Nirvana is nothing but that. Nirvana literally means uh, the blowing out of something. In this case, the blowing out of greed, of hatred, confusion. And initially, this is something that lasts for a very brief moment of time. And that's one point that all the Buddhist traditions tend to agree on. That that, 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 that moment when we finally stop, and, and really stop, not, not just, you know, sit down and sit still. But there's a deep uh, stopping within ourselves of those accumulated tendencies and habits might be nothing but a glimpse, a kind of interruption to the normal pattern of things. And then very quickly, those old patterns will reassert themselves. And I think this is almost inevitable given um, what we would now understand about the, the origins of greed and hatred and delusion. These are not just kind of adventitious mental affects, um, you know, just sort of super, superficial features of our mind, but they seem to be uh, strategies of behavior that are instinctively wired into our brain. If we accept the evolutionary biological explanation for the emergence of greed and hatred and delusion, we find that their origins lie in our body, in our neurophysiology, in contrast to the classical Buddhist idea that they are aspects of our mind, this mind that's come from all these different past lives, and therefore by tinkering with the mind we can somehow get rid of them. There's another strand in Buddhist, in, in early Buddhist uh, uh, te te teaching that we find around, focused around the figure of Mara, which I've mentioned before, the devil, the demonic, in which uh, the Buddha doesn't speak of these things as being literally deleted, but speaks of entering into a profoundly new relationship with them. I'm not persuaded that something as deep-seated as, 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 as aversion and attraction are things that we can, with a bit of meditation, just get rid of. That doesn't seem to be the point. The point, really, is to be able to um, be in this world, be in this body, be in this mind, but no longer be subject to those imperatives, those diktats of greed, hatred, and delusion. The greed and the hatred might pop up in the mind, but that doesn't mean 
that we have to believe in them or buy into them. One can just as well be free from them through a deep knowing of what they are, to observe them just as the play of the brain or the mind, and to no longer identify with them. And there are many passages, uh, many of which I cite in my last book about the devil, in which this seems to be quite clear. And remember that even after the Buddha had become awakened, had conquered Mara, as the texts say, Mara continues until the very end of his life to be around. Mara is not gotten rid of. The Buddha hasn't become perfect in that sense. But rather, he's come into a whole other relationship with these instinctive, uh, deeply embedded drives. I think it's certainly true, nonetheless, that the less we live from those drives, the less we will reinforce them, the less they will dominate, and the more that they will, to some degree, begin to fade away. And there seems to be neuro, neurological ev evidence for this in the actual uh, plasticity of the brain and the opening up of different neural pathways. But it would seem that some those deeply instinctive drives have their roots right down in the reptilian uh, part of the brain itself, and I can't imagine that they can literally be erased. But the point is that um, we can see here that fully knowing suffering leads organically to a letting go of grasping of certain strategies of behavior that at a certain point or points in our life will lead us to moments of what we might call freedom in which we're no longer the victim or the puppets pulled by the strings of these cravings and, and fears and hatreds. Even though the cravings and the fears and hatreds might be bub bubbling up, there's an experience of, of what the Buddha sometimes called cooling down or cessation. Now sometimes um, nirvana has been elevated into another privileged religious object. Nirvana is often thought of as a kind of Buddhist sort of heavenly space or something. And the Buddha himself, or at least attributed to him, are statements in which he talks of having uh, reach the unconditioned, the deathless, phrases which we might have heard and phrases which are often very attractive. And we might wonder, in fact, well, perhaps there is something transcendental, something um, uh, beyond this world in Buddhism too, something more or less equivalent to God. But it's called the unconditioned or the deathless or the unborn. And there's a very famous uh, passage that is much loved of Western Buddhists, um, which is in the Udana. It says, Monks, there is an unborn, an unbecome, an unconstructed, an unconditioned. Monks, if that unborn, unbecome, unconstructed, unconditioned were not, there would be apparent no escape here from that which is born 
become constructed and conditioned. This text is endlessly cited. Curiously, it only occurs once in the whole canon in a text called the Udana, which is kind of a collection of little short passages that don't seem to fit anywhere else. And it's often used as a kind of connecting point between Buddhism and the theistic traditions. It sounds very much like some some profoundly other transcendent realm. But, again, I think the Buddha is using those terms, but not in a way in which they would be habitually understood or traditionally understood, say, in the Upanishadic tradition in this case. And to find out what the Buddha does mean by words like the unconditioned, nirvana, the deathless, the unborn, all we have to do is go to a text called the Asankata Sanyutta, the Connected Discourses on the Unconditioned, which is in the Sanyutta Nikaya. And again, it's quite straightforward. And what bhikkhus is the unconditioned? The destruction of of, of greed, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. So again, it's quite quite clear. The, The Buddha's not talking about some other space or some other realm or some other condition. He's simply using this term to describe what for him is the summum bonum, the highest good, namely the falling away of greed, the falling away of hatred, the falling away of delusion. In other words, nirvana, call it what you like. The, 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 the enormous temptation, though, again, which follows from normative religious thinking, is to set this up as some kind of um, privileged religious object, to split the world into two, the conditioned world and the unconditioned world, the, uh, the, the born and the unborn. We love doing this. Religion loves doing that. It's how it works. It splits the world apart. It's very striking, though, in both the, uh, the sutta that I first cited, where the Buddha describes his enlightenment. He doesn't mention anything about the unconditioned. He says that what constituted his awakening was his insight into the conditioned, the contingent, the dependently arising. Likewise, in the, in the first discourse, no mention of the unconditioned. He doesn't use that word but rather he extrapolates his principle of conditionality into a form of praxis which becomes, as it were, um, a way of life through these different phases. And I'm sorry to repeat this, but to fully know suffering, which leads to a letting go of craving, which leads to an experience, and the word he uses is experience, to see with your own eyes, literally, an experience of that freedom of that stopping or as he calls the unconditioned the loss of greed of hatred and delusion and that is the space in which one enters the stream this um, this sotapanna entering the stream is often translated as a moment of enlightenment or the initial moment of enlightenment I don't think it's ever stated quite that way in the classical texts, but it will do. But the point is 
that it's pointing not to the fact that this cessation or this freedom is the end of the path, but actually it's pointing to the fact that it's the beginning. So when the Buddha is asked, what do you mean by entering the stream? What is this stream you're talking about? He says the stream is the Eightfold Path, which is true seeing, true thinking, true speech, true action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness and concentration. So the experience of Nibbana, and again it's probably confusing to keep using that word, this moment at which you're letting go brings you to a point of having let gone, as it were, that moment of, of stopping, that realisation deep down that you don't have to live your life dictated by your attachments and your fears and your hatreds. That moment is when the path begins. That is what then morphs organically into the path itself. And again, this is not my interpretation. This is quite clear from the most primary sources. It's also a model that I was taught by my Tibetan uh, teachers as well. <clears throat> that um, the process that the Buddha's uh, describing is one that culminates not in nirvana, but in the path. Now I think partly because of the f- world view in which Buddhism has been classically framed, the idea of escaping from the cycle of birth and death and things like that, the emphasis has tended to shift constantly back to the experience of nirvana. Whereas in terms of this uh, four-truth model, it would seem simply in terms of how the four truths are, are uh, ordered, that the culmination of this process is the practice of the path itself. The path is the primary, uh, is what we're heading for. The fourth noble truth, not the third, which would be entirely logical given the way he's laid this out. Now this path is therefore, and if we think, I've just sketched it, seeing, thinking, speaking, action, livelihood, it includes everything that as human beings we are involved in. It's a description of life. It's not privileging certain spiritual activities. It's describing um, how we live and function in this world in terms of our own way of seeing things, of thinking about things, of communicating to other people, of acting in the world, of earning our living. And that then creates a foundation on which we can deepen our mindfulness, our concentration. But it doesn't end at concentration, the eighth step of the Eightfold Path. That concentration is then turned back to the very beginning of the path, enabling us to know dukkha more fully, to let go of craving and so on. What we have in this model is what nowadays would be called a feedback loop. 
the eightfold path is not just a linear process from A to Z. And when we get to Z, then we can pack up and go home. But rather, when we get to Z, in this case, sama samadhi, um, true focus or concentration, that focus or concentration requires an object. And that object is the first truth, the second truth, the third truth, the fourth truth. In other words, the process keeps renewing itself. There's a constant sense of renewal that with each phase of the practice we somehow achieve a greater depth. And from that depth, our practice somehow comes alive in a way that it hadn't before. And I feel that this is something that goes on and on and on. It's not, there's not some sort of definitive end point. So that's um, where I will stop today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.